Every child responds to incoming sensory stimulation and various challenges in their own way and learns to manage these stressors on an individual timetable. Being attuned to individual differences in children's development of self-regulation in the way each child manages sensory stimulation and responds to challenges enables educators to establish the kind of nurturing relationships that strengthen children's capacity for learning. The Kindergarten Program Document 2016. In order to effectively support the development of self-regulation, it's important for educators to observe each child's development and to encourage and support the child in individualized ways. On this episode of Curious in Kindergarten, Cheryl Duffett, RECE on Special Assignment, joins me as we speak with Lindsay McQuinn, who is a teacher on Special Assignment supporting children around Thames Valley with the special education team. Lindsay will be sharing with us some strategies that educators can use to help children co-regulate when they become overwhelmed by the various stressors they come into contact with across the day. Thanks for joining us today, Lindsay. Thank you so much, Cheryl and Belinda. I'm super excited to be here. It's especially awesome to be working again with you, Belinda. We we worked <laughs> together in kindergarten years ago. Yes, we did. When she was doing a kindergarten specialty position, I was in the classroom. She and I certainly have lots of lived experiences together with kinder <laughs> students. We've seen our fair share of students impacted by stressors. So it's really, really fun that we get to work together again. So great to uh, reconnect, and yeah, I remember so yes, singing lots of songs and coming into your classroom with my magical suitcase <laughs> of goodies and games, but we had a lot of fun. It was so children. much fun. So we know that kindergarten classrooms can be busy places. Could you share with us some examples of what kinds of stressors a child might experience throughout the day? Yeah, definitely. So all of us experience various stressors throughout the day. Right from the minute we wake up in the morning to the minute we head for bed, our days are filled with like small moments that require our attention, as well as big moments that require even more attention. Some of these things will be positive and bucket filling, and some of them will simply just be distracting, and others will be extremely stressful. And no matter what is coming your way, it requires attention and processing. And it's no different for our littles in kindergarten. The difference is that we have many years of experience with coping with the stressors mm -hmm. and we've developed ways to manage them, but our little ones don't have those tools yet. So those stressors can add up to really big feelings and they don't always have the appropriate ways to handle them. Some of the questions we might ask when thinking about the stressors that impact our kindergarten students might be, did they have a good sleep? Did they have a positive or negative interaction with their family in the morning? Did they eat anything for breakfast? How is the bus ride? Is the classroom noisy today? Maybe they're feeling unwell. Maybe they're anxious about something at home. Did it snow? Is the weather changing? Do they have to wear snow pants today? It's <laughs> stressful for everyone. Are they coming down with a cold? Did they get what they needed from a grown-up today in terms of that connection and attachment? That's so important. Do they feel like they belong with their peer group? Did a sound or image or con comment or physical sensation trigger a stress response? We just don't know. A lot of these things are invisible to us, right? Mm -hmm. So as you can see, there's no shortage of stressors, even for our youngest learners. So we just have to try to be sensitive to and aware of these as we engage with the learners throughout the school day. I know it's amazing that list of stressors that they may come into contact with and things that might seem, you know, tiny to us can really stay on the line. It can be mind. so big for a little person. Yeah, for sure. Well, Lindsay, there sure are a lot of stressors that can affect these little ones. So when a child is overwhelmed, why might it be difficult to get their attention or redirect them? 
right? When human beings generally are overwhelmed, we see a wide range of behavioral responses. I actually can't wait to get into what that looks like and how it presents itself. But first, let's talk about what's actually happening in the brain during those moments of escalation. So the best way can, I can explain this is by using the hand model of the brain. It's a really easy way for us to recognize and, and communicate actually to our students the various parts of the brain and the role they play in escalation. Play along with me. I promise you won't, I, okay. you won't regret it. Okay. You won't regret it. Okay, so hold up your hand. Fingers are spread apart. All right. Your All right. hand is going to represent your whole brain. First, look at your wrist. This is the part of the hand model that presents the brain, or sorry, represents the brain stem. The brain stem is responsible for basic functioning, breathing, keeping your heart pumping, basically keeping you alive. Next, fold your thumb across your palm just under your fingers. This represents your amygdala. This is the area of the brain that's responsible for sensing danger, letting the body know when there might be some kind of threat coming our way. And for our kiddos, this could be a physical threat or an emotional one. Uh, that's that's the amygdala. Okay, are you still with me? Yeah, okay. I know it seems kind of silly, but it really does make a lot of sense to our students when it's explained this way. Okay, the next step, fold your four remaining fingers over the top of the thumb. These four fingers represent the prefrontal cortex. So this is the part of the brain that helps us make complex decisions and most importantly, helps us regulate our emotions. So when we experience fear, danger, intense emotion, the amygdala, your thumb, which registers these types of events and warns the body of it, it gets totally overwhelmed and the prefrontal cortex goes offline. So it's almost like the amygdala, if you picture it sort of getting bigger and overwhelming the prefrontal cortex. So at this point, your four fingers have exploded upward and they are no longer keeping your amygdala in check. So emotion takes over, logical reasoning, self-regulation goes offline, and this is when we see escalation. So this is why we call it flipping your lid. Also, without those four fingers taking care of your amygdala, emotion rules and you're not going to be able to reason or logic alongside a student in that moment of escalation. Got my amygdala wiggle in here and then my four <laughs> fingers, they flip up and then kind of have those stressors. So what might an educator observe when a child has flipped their lid when that amygdala is uh, open and exposed? Right. So this is kind of those three, the three F's, the fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, it can show itself in lots of ways. You may have heard of that term, fight or flight, before. Your amygdala is trying really, really hard to keep you safe from harm and danger. And without the prefrontal cortex doing its logic job to keep the amygdala in check, we would see um, kind of these three forms of escalation. So the first one we would see is fight. This is when we see our students get feisty or spicy. They may lash out with their words. They might call us names, swearing, yelling no. We might see refusal to cooperate or other actions we might see as defiance. We might hear them screaming, yelling, uh, groaning, growling. This is where we see physical lashing out. So the kicking, biting, pinching, hitting, punching, those kinds of things that we sometimes see when our little friends are overwhelmed. And the amygdala will literally do whatever it takes to do what it thinks will keep our friends safe. And again, that can include some physical stuff and some yelling. Secondly, uh, flight. So this is where we see our students eloping or leaving the area, uh, running, running behavior. The purpose of this behavior is to escape the threat. Simple, yeah. plain and simple. Uh, sometimes the threat is just the demand of having to put away their lunch or sit with their friends at the carpet. It can be really, really straightforward, but to them it's a threat. Typically in this situation, in a school setting, 
the threat is a demand, uh, and often it's a demand for a non-preferred activity, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And so flight is, yeah, we're that running behavior elopement. Feel that as like adults sometimes, right? Yeah. You know, when we're getting ready for a big presentation. It would just be yeah. nice to be, you know, just escape. <laughs> so totally, I mean, we can see how that stress. I have a lot of empathy yeah. for these behaviors for sure. So freeze is the last one. It's another reaction that our amazing amygdala has to a threat of danger. The amygdala feels like the enemy, but it's not. It's really trying to protect us and keep us safe. This would be what we would see in the wild as an animal playing dead or not moving to avoid being sensed by a predator. It's the freeze tactic. So in our kinders, it often looks like laying down, refusing to move or speak, or even hiding. Mm -hmm. Hiding is actually also a form of flight. So sometimes you see those two things in, in conjunction. Sometimes we might miss that freeze behavior too, right? Because it might be just a, a child feeling overwhelmed and maybe they're really quiet and they're just sitting off on their own and, and we might not notice that they're dealing with those stressors. True. To the untrained eye, it might look like compliance, but isn't. It's yeah. for building those relationships, right, with your, your students and the children and getting to know them. Getting to um, understand them. Really yeah. Well. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so true, actually. When kids go really quiet, we view them as being cooperative, but really it's a good possibility that, um, you know, a student who's prone to escalation in a free situation is actually quite escalated, but we wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah. So... Now that we know what to look for, and I think our educators have all seen of this course, happening, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are some strategies that educators can use to help the children get that lid back on mm -hmm. during those moments of escalation? Mm -hmm. So this is what we call de-escalation strategies. This is my favorite part. <laughs> this is like the this is the bulk of the work that I do certainly with Thames Valley, and, and I love it. Well, inquiring um, minds want to know. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Let's get into it. So. There are so many ways to de-escalate a student, and the strategy you choose will absolutely depend on the type of escalation you're seeing. However, I would advise that no matter what the escalation looks like, I want you to consider first and foremost the acronym WAIT, W-A-I-T. And this stands for Why Am I Talking? And it helps to remind us that we have to be really intentional with our words uh, and what we're, the words that we're using during moments of escalation. So we want to use as little verbal prompting as possible when a student is highly escalated because chances are verbal input will cause them to escalate further. So think about your own self uh, when you're you know, in a traffic jam or things are really busy or someone's cut you off. My first reaction is to turn off the radio. Less verbal input or less audio input when I'm escalated is like usually my first line of defense. So ensure that you're not placing further demand on them during escalation by talking at them. Um, they're not even going to be able to compute the instruction anyway. Remember that their prefrontal cortex is offline. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to be able to necessarily understand what you're asking, and they're likely going to push back on it anyway. Next is positive, respectful language. So we, we, we want to make sure that even though we're upset, we, won't, we are not being dismissive during escalation. So remember, the student doesn't feel great in this moment as it is. So we want to speak low and slow, use simple phrases such as first, then. First, put your shoes on, then you can have that toy. Visuals are a great way to reduce verbal input as well in those situations. Yeah. So showing those, you know, stop, wait, um, you know, all those little tags we have on our lanyards. I got my lanyard. Use yes. them, use them, guys. <laughs> They're awesome. Okay, time and space is next. So let the student come down in their own time. Do not enter that student's space when they are escalated. Oftentimes, that's when we see those physical moments with students when they feel even further threatened when their personal space is being invaded. So give them that time, give them space to de-escalate. 
Okay, we want to remove the target. So if there's a person, an adult or a peer, who's the target of the upset, we want to remove that person from the situation to reduce further yeah. escalation, right? Yeah. Sometimes we're the target and that makes sense. So that actually is a good segue into tag out. So if you're getting agitated or you're the target, make sure that you're self-aware in that moment and just be willing to trade out with another educator to avoid further upset of yourself and of the student. And that's the beauty of the kindergarten classroom, right? Is that we yeah. do have those two educators so in the classroom. True. So uh, yeah. rely on that teaching it's partner. so true. Yeah. And you're never, I mean, just in education in general, you're never alone. No. I mean, you certainly have a building full of experts yes. at you know, your disposal. So it's the tag out is very, very helpful. I've used it many times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you want to stay neutral. Never let them see you sweat if you will the student's function of behavior might be attention um, so if you're getting visibly agitated you're inadvertently feeding that behavior we don't even really know that we're doing it staying neutral not showing emotion not showing that you're upset at the height of escalation is a really important strategy you want to talk about how you felt about it later after the student is calm after their prefrontal cortex is back online uh, distraction, that's another one. Humor can be a great tool during these moments. Distracting the student with an interesting observation or a conversation they might be highly interested in. Maybe they're into Mario or Peppa Pig, it doesn't matter. Uh, sometimes distracting them can be enough to shake them out of that heightened state and get their lid back on. I know sometimes you guys have probably come across this. This feels like reinforcing the behavior because mm -hmm. you're engaging them in something they're interested in. But I want to make it very clear that the distraction is not a reinforcer, it's actually a calming strategy. Then, after the escalation, you still expect the student to follow through on the demand, mm -hmm. but we have to wait until they're de-escalated to continue with that demand. Okay, providing choice. Uh, sometimes just giving the student an option is a, enough to help them feel more in control. For example, you want to get to the gym, right? And they're refusing to move. Yeah. They're in freeze mode. Yeah. yeah. You can give them that option. Do you want to hold my hand when we walk to the gym or do you want to do it on your own? We still got what we need. <laughs> we still got them to the gym. They get a little bit of say and voice and choice in the situation, which can go a long way. We want to make sure we're showing some empathy and this is probably, you know, one of the hardest but most important things to do, especially when we're working on building relationship with our kids. Ensure the student knows that you see them and that you understand how hard this is for them. So saying things like, I see that you're frustrated or this must be hard for you. It shows them that you care about how they're doing. And if you're reducing speech, right, in the escalation, even just eye contact, uh, a smile or an empathetic expression can show that you're not upset with them, even though you might be. It's important that they don't know that and that they feel that you have compassion for the situation. And you want to always keep, you know, building that relationship. You yeah. want that child to see you as that yeah. safe person. As you said, like we have many years of experience with this yeah. as adults and they're just learning. So, so having that empathy yeah. for them, I think is key because, you know, we all flip our lids sometimes, Absolutely. but we need that chance to come back. Absolutely. We need to give kids permission and space to feel their feelings. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Big feelings, little bodies, right? So maybe feel a bit upset ourselves, the children might be feeling upset or hurt, you know, everyone might be feeling a little bit frustrated, especially if there's like a time crunch, like we have to get to the gym or right. it's recess time now. But, you know, how do we reconnect with our students after an escalation, ensuring that, you know, we want to mend that relationship and continue uh, mm -hmm. their growth and learning? Reconnection um, 
and debrief after an escalation can be one of the hardest things. Mm-hmm. We were upset. They're upset. Nobody's happy. Uh, there's probably a mess to clean up. There's chairs knocked over. There's bins dumped. Like, we've all seen it. And we actually, you know, we're only human. We may have taken the behavior personally. We may feel like it has behaved inappropriately on purpose just to upset us. The student may feel unseen, misunderstood, not want to apologize in order to stay safe. And I know that sounds strange, but those are those protectors at work again. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability can feel really unsafe for some of our students. And saying sorry, believe it or not, is actually a form of vulnerability yes. and can make them feel very exposed. I know it's hard to believe in these moments, but I assure you, our students will not would not behave this way if they could help it. Their bodies don't feel good in this state. Mm-hmm. They are not choosing this behavior, although it feels sometimes that they are. Trust me, they don't want to feel this way. It's so important, like we said, to not comment on the behavior in the moment of escalation. However, later on, when the student's calm and available for feedback and learning, we can address what happened. It's important that we address what happened. We can lead with empathy gosh, you know, that looked like a really hard time for you. Or your body must have felt really wild back there. Or we can ask questions of our students, assuming that they have the verbal ability to communicate the answers, such as, how does your body feel right now? Mm -hmm. And how did it feel back then? So it's actually really important to draw attention to the sense of calm they might be feeling during happy moments so that they have something to compare it to during more heated moments. Um, one of the most important things to consider, too, is that the student knows that we still like them, yes. even though they behaved <laughs> yeah. in a way that we didn't mm. like. Let's make sure we're differentiating the student from the behavior. Mm. Our students are not their behaviors. We need to try to avoid labeling the students and post-escalation. Every day, every moment is a fresh start with them. A student may behave in a certain way. That doesn't necessarily have to define them as a person. I think it's important that they know that. Yes, we don't want them to internalize that feeling. I think it's important important. too, like if you are leaning on that remembrance of what the good times that you've had with that student and your relationship that you have with that student and and focusing on that during those difficult times. Absolutely, yeah, and drawing attention to the positive energy in the space during those happy moments is really important so they can reflect on that when things are going sideways. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea of, do you feel prickly? Did your stomach feel flip-floppy? So, you know, we're so good at maybe putting those labels of, like, happy, frustrated, angry, but really what does your body feel in that moment of stress as a way to know, like, oh, when my stomach feels flip-floppy, maybe it's time for me to go to the calming cube or, you know, when I'm starting to feel a bit hot, I might need to go do, you know, some of those um, calming exercises that are posted on the wall of my classroom. So I love that, understanding how you physically Um, how it manifests in your body yes yeah that's such a good point yeah Mm -hmm. I love the thought too about when you were saying about the child not doing this on purpose Mm. right that this is not something they would choose Mm -hmm. to do if they had Mm -hmm. another option Mm -hmm. which I think is something that I've tried to keep in mind when I've been dealing with my own children (laughs) and children that I work with Um, but I have a little acronym as well like your weight acronym it's like Q-tip, so quit taking it personally, (gasps) is something that I did. And I actually have had in the past a little Q-tip that I've put in my kind of teaching area and where I could see it, just as a reminder. Cheryl, this is genius. Lindsay, those are some great suggestions on how to help the student and your relationship post-escalation. But us as educators also need to debrief and take care of ourselves after these incidents. 
what are some ways that we can do some self-care or debrief with our teams about what went well or what didn't go well mm -hmm. during that escalation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we are all aware of the importance of our mental health and well-being as educators. It is absolutely essential. If we are not well, we cannot show up well for our students. Yeah. Um, if we're not our best selves, how can we support our students in healthy ways, right? So this actually goes back to the conversation you had with Caitlin and Tiffany in episode eight. Uh, about co-regulation. We're not calm, our students can't be calm. So after a hard day or after an escalation or after a hard week, it's important that we as grown-ups find ways to find our center again. Maybe uh, it looks like a coffee with a friend or a quiet evening of reading. Maybe it's early to bed that night. Maybe yoga or meditation is your thing. Maybe a walk or time with a pet or someone you love. As well, um, we need to make sure we make time for debriefing the incident with any staff involved in the escalation. Mm -hmm. So anyone who's involved or witnessed it, certainly if it required BMS protocol, we have to make sure we're filling out that proper paperwork as well. I can't um, stress that enough. Um, you know, what was that trigger? How can we help prevent this for next time? What went well during the escalation? What could we do better uh, in the future? Oh, you know, I found I was talking too much or I jumped in too quickly and didn't ask if you needed my help. Like those kinds of things, just reflecting on your own reactions in the presence of another grown-up can be really, really helpful. How is everyone feeling? How's everyone feeling after this? It doesn't feel great in these yeah. moments. And it's really important that we have a safe place to put this afterwards. Um, just make sure that your admin, all the EAs, ECEs, educators, everybody are all included in the conversations after an escalation. Uh, it's really important that moving forward you're all on the same page uh, about what your next steps are with that particular student. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Take it, We have to take care of ourselves. Yeah. We really do. Yeah. It's so important to have these conversations because every class, every child will be different. You come into contact with similar behaviors maybe across your years of mm -hmm. teaching. I think having that conversation with people that, you know, it's okay to reflect and rethink and be like, well, that strategy didn't work this time. What's yeah. a, a strategy we can try um, again differently and yeah. that idea of all being on the same page. And it comes back to vulnerability as well, actually, and being able to own your error in the mm -hmm. moment. And be, I've, I've actually gone up to educators in my role and been like, Sorry, I totally messed that one up. Like, <laughs> yes. Can I ever redo? And it's a matter of being willing to own your errors and and how to, and sort of brainstorm on how to fix them the next time. I think a lot of relationship building with our students comes down to vulnerability. Yes. Uh, and letting them know you make mistakes too. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 we're all human. We're all human. So. It's okay. We just have to learn how to fix them next time. No big deal. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of these strategies um, and to even that hand model of the brain. It's so important to understand, you know, yeah. when we want to have those reflective conversations with the children and with our coworkers yeah. versus what we can do in the moment. So right, um, right. now everyone's going to have a Q-tip in their yeah, pocket. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's going to be walking around looking at their wrist and holding a Q-tip in the other hand. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much, friends. I would like to thank Lindsay and Cheryl for joining the conversation today and helping deepen our knowledge of how the brain responds to stressors. It's so important to take the time to consider that learning how to regulate our emotions is an integral part of the kindergarten program and a skill children can continue to benefit from throughout their entire lives. Thank you for listening to Curious in Kindergarten, where we explore topics that matter to you.